this is Rob Lott. And I'm Leslie Erdelak. You're listening to Health Affairs This Week. Uh, this is a weekly conversation between health affairs editors where we talk about uh, the latest and most interesting topics in health policy. Uh, and so, Leslie, uh, get us started. It's another busy week. Yeah. So it's Thursday, December 2nd, and we're recording as another really kind of frenzied week winds down, Rob. There's talk of another potential government shutdown after midnight on Friday if Congress doesn't agree to a new funding deal. And of course, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments this week concerning a case that has major implications for abortion rights in this country. But another big headline is that health officials in California announced the first confirmed case of the Omicron COVID-19 variant that, um, you know, had already been identified in dozens of countries. So is that concerning? Yeah. Um, But there are also a lot of open questions, right? So, Rob, um, take us through what do we know and maybe more importantly, what don't we know about Omicron right now? Yeah, you said it, um, because this is such a relatively new development. There's a lot that we still don't know. Um, So this variant was first identified um, in a case in Botswana in November, um, but it was the South African surveillance system, uh, which is evidently one of the the best in the world that really raised this to the world's attention and led to uh, recently the World Health Organization calling it a variant of concern. Um, So this variant, Omicron, has a significant number of mutations, especially uh, in its spike protein, uh, more than we saw in Delta, the Delta variant. And these are mutations that scientists are concerned about. But the truth is we still have to wait and see. So what exactly are we waiting on? Yeah, so there are three sort of key elements that I think are going to help us get a handle on just how worrisome the Omicron variant actually is. Uh, The first is transmissibility, right? How easily spread the variant is. And in theory, the particular mutations that scientists have identified, um, those seem to suggest that it may be as transmissible as Delta, maybe even more. Uh, But it's too early to say we really need to watch the real world case numbers and look at how widely and rapidly it is spreading. Uh, The second element is the severity of the disease that it causes, right? So how likely someone with the Omicron uh, variant is how likely they are to be uh, hospitalized or or dying uh, from it. And again, it's too early to say. We really don't know. But the key here is rigorous testing and monitoring. And then the third element is uh, so-called immune escape. And that is to say... Um, Does a person's immunity to a previous version of COVID, whether they've acquired it through a previous infection or vaccination, does that protect them from this version? In other words, um, based on the number and kind of mutations, researchers are worried enough that this could be an issue. But again, we don't know 
hopefully within the next week and a half, two weeks or so, we should start to get some more concrete information, but to really kind of track and follow the disease for uh, a number more weeks before we um, really know what's going on. And so we have this scenario where we think it could be bad, but it's still too early. We just have to be patient for the scientists and epidemiologists to do their work. Uh, but as Tom Petty saying, uh, the waiting is the hardest part. And uh, I think another way to say that is the waiting kind of creates a vacuum where speculation, confusion, misinformation can thrive. And suddenly the uncertainty makes a hard situation that much more fraught. But Leslie, while we're waiting, I do want to say one more thing, and that's um, that it's hard to imagine a more stark example of just how interconnected the entire world is, especially when it comes to a pandemic like this, but really more broadly when it comes to our health and health equity at the global level. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, global health has been a huge part of the conversation. There's been a lot of attention on vaccine equity, and I think more to the point, the fact that much of the world's COVID vaccine um, supply has gone primarily to the wealthiest countries. And by failing to get these vaccines distributed widely enough to low-income countries, we're actually creating opportunities for the spread of new variants because so many people around the world remain unvaccinated. And people have pointed to Omicron as a sign that we've kind of neglected to treat COVID as a global disease and that there just hasn't been a unified global response to increase the vaccination rates around the world. And this is how variants come about. You know, the more the disease is allowed to spread, the greater the chance we'll see these mutations that could potentially make COVID-19 more transmissible and virulent. Yeah. So, uh, of course, this is not the first time that people are raising the question of global health inequities. Um, and this has been raised over the last 40 years, really, uh, during the discussion about HIV AIDS around the world. 33 million people have died uh, from AIDS. And uh, some researchers have highlighted that more than half of those deaths have come uh, after 1996, when proven antiretroviral treatment reached the market. Uh, but of course, uh, it took at least five, six, seven years for those treatments to be even vaguely accessible and affordable to some of the hardest hit regions around the world. Uh, Leslie, a, a recent report from the joint UN program on HIV AIDS says that these inequities are likely to continue if they're not addressed and we could see another 7 million plus AIDS deaths over the next 10 years. And I mention all of this because, not just because of the parallels between COVID and AIDS are significant, we also marked World AIDS Day this week on December 1. So World AIDS Day was actually the first ever global health observance. And so we started commemorating this day in uh, 1988 as a way to show support for people living with HIV and to remember those who died from an AIDS-related illness. And I just think it's important because it reminds us that HIV hasn't gone away. Um, it's still a global pandemic. This year marks 40 years since the first cases of AIDS were reported. And so even though HIV and COVID-19 are totally different, um, you know, whether you're comparing them from sort of a genomic standpoint or looking at how they're transmitted um, and even the mortality associated with these viruses, 
you know, I, I think you're right. I think there are some unmistakable parallels here. And the vaccine inequalities that we're seeing play out during COVID resemble the treatment inequalities of the early AIDS response, um, because it took it it took so long, decades, I think, um, for HIV tests and medications to become, um, as you said, more available and affordable. And so there's this sentiment that globally um, we're not bending the curve fast enough to end the HIV epidemic. So how many times have we said the same thing about COVID? And as we continue to move through this pandemic, we've gone from dealing with the immediate crisis to a more long-term public health response that's kind of embracing um, this vigilance around the new COVID-19 variants and the mutations. And I just think it's worth reflecting like what is keeping us in this pandemic? You know, these inequities that we're seeing around the world in terms of vaccine distribution, like are they not similar to the kinds of inequities um, that are sort of prolonging and really um, undercutting our ability to end the HIV epidemic? So, you know, we're well on our way to ending HIV in, in some communities, but we're not anywhere near achieving that goal in others. And um, there's also some indication that people living with HIV who are not virally suppressed are more likely to be severely affected by COVID. Um, and so I just think many of these missing pieces, things that would be key to eliminating HIV, like equitable uh, access to medicines and testing are also missing from the pandemic response and just allowing the COVID-19 pandemic to evolve the way it has um, with really devastating consequences for the poorest and most marginalized groups. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, you know, on one hand, I'm glad people are talking about this. On the other hand, there's this sort of like realization that we are we are really behind in terms of incorporating the lessons from the last 40 years into our infrastructure and our response to uh, global health crises like this. And I'll say, uh, for one thing, President Biden did acknowledge those very challenges uh, earlier this week, um, especially how the COVID-19 pandemic has really impacted every aspect of the HIV AIDS response and the effort to really close gaps in access to prevention, care, treatment. Um, and that recognition sort of took the form of a uh, newly released and updated national HIV AIDS strategy this week to decrease health inequities and in new diagnoses and improve access to comprehensive evidence-based uh, HIV prevention tools. So Leslie, um, I know you got a, a look at the strategy. What are some of your takeaways? Yeah, well, there's a distinct focus in this strategy on addressing health inequities and inequalities, which is reassuring because this is kind of laying the groundwork for policy and research um, over the next few years to get us closer to that goal that we've been working toward for a while, which is ending the HIV epidemic in the U.S. by 2030 uh, by reducing the number of new HIV transmissions. One thing standing in the way of us reaching that goal is the fact that we know that not everyone is benefiting equally from advances in HIV prevention and treatment. So the updated strategy has four goals, and one of them is to really kind of understand the inequities uh, within 
the social determinants of health and the ways that they contribute to health disparities in HIV prevention and treatment. Something I think worth noting about the new plan, and I found it to be really candid about the fact that as much as COVID has sort of pushed our efforts around HIV sort of to the periphery and maybe we lost some ground there, we also kind of have at our disposal now some new tools and some new strategies because we were forced to adapt because of the challenges uh, that we faced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think the strategy sort of met the moment in that way. And the report talks a bit about using COVID testing and vaccinations as an opportunity to diagnose people who are not aware of their HIV status. We've heard about hospitals actually seeing considerable increases in acute HIV diagnoses when they linked HIV screening with COVID testing in the emergency department. And another example uh, is the shift to telemedicine. And how do we leverage telehealth visits more effectively so that people with HIV uh, can get ongoing care. And just to take it a step further, you know, how do we deploy some of these strategies to reach communities where we're seeing some of the biggest disparities and to get to the people who've been traditionally left out? So I think the updated strategy is really thoughtful in laying out and making the case that the steps we need to be taking around pandemic preparedness and response are really mutually beneficial and necessary for ending the HIV epidemic too. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, I think it really does highlight where the investments we make in addressing one disease, for example, might really apply to um, ways we improve our approach to uh, prevention and treatment more broadly. Of course, a strategy is where it begins. The next step is um, implementation and investment in making it happen. And so um, we've got some work to do. And perhaps uh, that's a good place for us to wrap up. Uh, Leslie, a lot of interesting stuff uh, to continue watching. It's been great talking to you today. Thanks for Likewise, uh, catching Rob. up. Yeah. Um, to our listeners, please subscribe or recommend the podcast to a friend. And of course, tune in next week uh, for another episode of Health Affairs This Week.